Then Eliphaz the Temanite replied, If someone ventures a word with you, will you be impatient? But who can keep from speaking? Think how you have instructed many, how you have strengthened feeble hands. Your words have supported those who stumbled. You have strengthened faltering knees. But now trouble comes to you and you are discouraged? It strikes you and you are dismayed? Should not your piety be your confidence and your blameless ways your hope? It stopped, but I could not tell what it was. A form stood before me and I heard a hushed voice. Can a mortal be more righteous than God? Can even a strong man be more pure than his maker? Blessed is the one whom God corrects. So do not despise the dis dis discipline of the Almighty. For he wounds, but he also binds up. He injures, but his hands also heal. Then Job replied, If only my anguish could be weighed and all my misery placed on the scales, it would surely outweigh the sands of the seas. No wonder my words have been impetuous. The arrows of the Almighty are in me. My spirit drinks their poisons. God's terrors are marshaled against me. Does a wild donkey bray when it has grass, or an ox bellow when it has father? Is tasteless food eaten without salt, or is there flavor in the sap of the mallow? I refuse to touch it. Such food makes me ill. Anyone withholds kindness from a friend forsakes the fear of the Almighty. If I have sinned, what have I done to you uh, who see everything we do? Why have you made me your target? Why have we become a burden to you? Why do you not pardon my offenses and forgive my sins? For I will soon lie down in dust. You will search for me, but I will be no more. Then Bildad the Shuite replied, How long will you say such things? Your words are a blustering wind. Does God pervert justice? Does the Almighty pervert what is right? When your children sinned against him, he gave them over to the penalty of their sin. But if you will seek God earnestly and plead with the Almighty, if you are pure and upright, even now he will rouse himself on your behalf and restore to you your prosperous state. Your beginnings will seem humble. So prosperous will your future be. Then Job replied, Indeed, I know that it's true, but how can mere mortals prove their innocence before God? Though they wish to dispute with him, they could not answer him one time out of a thousand. His wisdom is profound, his power is vast. Who has restricted him and come out unstaged, resisted him and come out unscathed? He moves mountains without their knowing, it overturns and overturns them with anger. He shakes the earth from its place and makes its pillars tremble. How then can I dispute with him? How can I find words to argue with him? Though I were innocent, I could not answer him. I could only plead with my judge for mercy. Even if I summoned him and he responded, I do not believe he would give me a hearing. He would crush me with a storm and simply multiply and multiply my wounds for no reason. He would not let me catch my breath, but would overwhelm me with misery. Then Zophar the Naamathite, yeah. Naamite, got it, replied, are all those words to go unanswered? Is this talker to be vindicated? Will your idle talk reduce others to silence? Will no one rebuke you when you mock? You say to God, my beliefs are flawless, and I am pure in your sight. Oh, how I wish that God would speak, that he would open his lips against you and disclose to you the secrets of wisdom. For true wisdom has two sides. Know this, God has even forgotten some of your sin. Then Job replied, Doubtless you are only the only people who matter, and wisdom will die with you. 
But I have a mind as well as you. I'm not inferior to you. Who does not know all these things? But as mountains erode and crumbles and as a rock is moved from its place. As water wearies away stones and torrents wash away the soil, so you destroy a person's hope. You overpower them once for all and they are gone. You change their countenance and send them away. If your children are honored, they do not know it. If their offspring are brought low, they do not see it. They feel the pain, they feel but the pain of their bodies and mourn only for themselves. The word of the Lord. God. Thank you for the readers. The kids are invited to kids' church and you are invited to be seated. selection from the book of Job um, was meant to show some of the debate that's taking place since we left Job. Um, So we started the book um, uh, in this sort of famous way. Um, In the land of Uz, there lives a man whose name was Job, and Job's life was in some ways perfect and pristine, and he was blameless and innocent before the Lord. His family got along, they had meals together, and his, everything he did seemed to prosper. And as I've said every week, is that when we introduce a character like that, you just know something bad is going to happen to them. Um, That's part of the narrative thing. What happens is then these scenes between heaven and earth sort of parallel each other. There's earth, and then a dialogue in heaven, and then earth again, and then a dialogue in heaven. And it essentially brings to this question, um, does does Job fear God for nothing? Does Job fear God for nothing? This is the question from the Ha-Satan, the accuser, or in some of our Bibles, Satan, um, although it should It would be helpful if it had the Satan to give a sense in which there's some sort of legal role here. It's not just the Satan that we have from the New Testament, but is in some sense something a little bit different. Um, But this is the question that sort of sets up the book from, I think, the God's eye perspective, which is, do people worship me, have faith, offer sacrifices, which Job does for his children after they have parties, which sounds worse than it meant in the (laughs) Saying it that way makes it sound worse than it was meant in the text to offer sacrifice for their children after they have parties. Anyways, um, maybe the ancient Near East wasn't so different from our time. Um, But uh, this question is, is do people have faith in God and move towards um, a holy life because it definitively works? As, as the Hasatan, the accuser, will say, you've set a hedge around him. Nothing can touch him. Of course he worships you. But if you were to remove that and he were to be stricken, would he still speak to you? And, and I think the Hasatan's line is that he will curse you to your face. What happens then, as many of us know, is that um, Job's family, all his servants, all his sheep, and all his rams, four episodes happen at once. It's this... Um, beautifully sad scene in which four people all arrive with the news of all of these people died and I was the only one who escaped. All your children died and I was the only one who escaped. And so Job in this um, way has all these four things happen and yet he's still in that place does not speak, um, does not curse God to his face. Um, he, he mourns, but he mourns in a lament that says um, he trusts in the Lord the Hasatan returns to heaven and says, uh, and, and there's a line in there that I think is important. Um, 
Um, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like them. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. And he still maintains his integrity, and though you incited me against him to ruin him without any reason. What has happened so far as we've seen in the dialogue of heaven is everything that has been struck against Job, even from the Lord's mouth, is without any reason. Bahasatan says, well, it's easy for him because his flesh has not been touched. That was part of the first deal. And so this time, Bahasatan is allowed to make Job suffer, but not to kill him. Job gets these boils on his skin, um, and when his friends come to see him, his three friends who we heard from just recently, he's scraping his skin with clay pots, and they see him and they don't recognize him because his suffering was great. This was the setup for next week, and, and next week was important in, in several ways, one in which it's the most clear expression of the darkness that Job is feeling. Um, for me, that one, when we move into the debates this week, the dialogues with Job, it's a little bit easier because um, there's a back and forth. There's language at play, but Job's lament in three was just dark and hard to sit with. And I think it's a gift to us that, that such a thing exists in Scripture, because it names that those feelings with, exist within the relationship with God, within the canon, within which are, are, we may find ourselves in the, our lives, though it happens. Um, and, and that pain um, is real. Pain is magnified. Pain is something that we all deal with. Um, so Job is able to express that in, in sharp language. Um, but I always thought that it was Job's friends. This is where you become unfamiliar with what you're familiar with. I always thought it was Job's friends that were like, hey, Job, cheer up after seven days. But it's actually Job who speaks first, which is why I think it's instructive that what um, Shelley um, read is that he even begins with these words. You can't tell how much people mean this. We only have the Bible in written text, so no audio, so you don't know if he's like, can I speak a word to you? And it, if that's in a tone that's like, look, man, you're kind of really into this, and I'm going to correct you, or if it's in a compassionate tone, but he at least begins with, you've spoken, and now it's our turn to speak, and to some sense guide and help you out. Um, their answers turn worse and worse over time, but that's what sort of begins the dialogue here at this point. One of the questions that I think overarches over throughout this point from the human perspective, do people have faith for nothing, I think is a lot of the God perspective which touches us. But what we'll find in Job and his friends is the order of the universe is how they understand it is threatened. Very much for them, good people are rewarded, bad people are punished. And Job even when he's in his dialogue with his friends, doesn't question that logic. He just says, but I'm innocent. <laughs> so this situation has been misapplied. Um, and so from, from their perspective, there's a whole question on, is the order in which we've been taken for granted, which we've seen life exist in, and at least we don't, we don't have any other text for this, 90% of the time, 95% of the time, you know, does, is that still true? And so they have to debate over this, and that's what takes up those dialogues. Now, what we read from today was from four to verse, or from chapter four 
to chapter 14. So that was just a selection of what appears there. And the cycles appear in that way that, that one of Job's friends speaks. Job responds to the friend. The next friend speaks. Job responds to the friend. The next friend speaks. Job responds to the thread. 4 through 14 is the first cycle. Next week, we'll do the second cycle. And the week after that, we'll do the third cycle. And I can't promise that I'll stick with this idea of just giving a large selection of it. We'll see how it goes today. Um, uh, but today, I want to walk through sort of what each of the friends are starting to propose and then how Job responds to each of them. Um, but before we get there, just some notes that I think are good to make clear about the book of Job. This one, uh, I had read this several times, and I thought it was a good day to share it. This is from um, a New York Times reviewer writing about novels, but he says, the English poet Samuel Taylor Coleridge once said that it is the book of Job was the book of Job was proof that the Bible was written by man and not God, for no God would have invented such a self-incriminating story. No God would have put this out there. Now, this is the God we worship, the God who gives us a document that is so self-incriminating. Now, Kim and I were talking before church. There's uh, Carl Jung, the famous psychologist who existed with Freud, wrote a commentary in the book of Job in which he argued, now this is not a theologically sound argument, but it's an interesting literary argument, that it was necessary that Jesus came after the book of Job because Job had raised the stakes so much with God that that was the only solution to remaining God. Um, that, that because Job raises these questions of, you don't know what it's like to suffer, you don't know what it's like to be bound in this, that God has to take those things on himself to answer Job's questions. Not a theologically sound argument, but one that sort of touches. And the significant word, I think, that he talks about here is that this is a story that helps us probe these mysteries. That we have in Job this kind of story, um, this kind of one which questions in these ways. Um, the last thing I want to say before we really get into it too today is all of us are familiar with this that have been here, I use this often, is that scripture has these three ways of sort of witnessing to who we are. God creates us, um, God redeems us, and God consummates us. God creates, God redeems, God consummates. And each one of these streams flows throughout Scripture. Now, some of them are more prominent in other books than others, and some of them are less prominent. Each summer, I've tried to argue that the wisdom tradition is most clearly located in that God creates. Just more, most often, we go to the book of Genesis, but if you read the book of Genesis all the way through, it's very much a book about the redemptive ways in which God is rescuing his people and beginning the process of setting the world to right. So redeems and consummates would be the main themes for the book of Genesis. Wisdom literature seems as creates. And the reason I say that is because the book of Proverbs, the book of Ecclesiastes, and the book of Job really tell very little of the saving work of God. Interestingly enough, none of Job's friends will say to him, remember when we were slaves suffering in Egypt and God heard the cry of the oppressed and led them out into freedom. None of them will talk about being the chosen people, how Israel was brought out of slavery and into a new life. None of them will talk about the hope of a promised land someday where land will be flowing with milk and honey. 
Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, um, the book of Job, and Song of Songs, which we'll get to next summer, thanks be to God, um, is that we have um, a series of books that are more in the general realms of human experience and life. Minus, at the end, there are very few God interruptions into those books. God does not show up in the book of Ecclesiastes. God does not literally show up and take up space in the book of Proverbs. It's advice for ordering your world. God shows up in the book of Job, and that's a bit of a different thing. And one of the ways I think we can, we can sort of see this, if, if you wanted to see it laid out, this is from Samuel Ballantyne's commentary, which again, you won't be able to see. Um, but uh, the word for God that's about that saving history is, is Yahweh, as many of us know, or yod hev vod Hey um, in Hebrew, uh, there's no vowel marks, um, occurs zero times, or all the other words for God that will be used throughout the book, uh, Elohim, which is sort of God of many gods, occurs eight times, and one and two, and uh, 42, seven through 17, the prose frames, the Elohim three times, but God's particular name, the one that he's given Israel, the one that is his redemptive story name, 23 times. Um, in God's speeches, five times that name appears. But in the dialogue with the friends and all the other questions, it appears maybe one time. The other names for God, 2, 6, 33, and 19 for L, appear a total of 55 times predominantly in that section of the book. This all seems very nerdy, but it is applicable to reading the book because Essentially, what's going on in the book of Job is trying to answer this question without recourse to how God rescues us definitively. It's trying to, to sort of live within the frame of what normal human existence likes without those sort of ways in which God reveals himself in other ways. And this is why many people think Job and his friends are um, not Israelites, um, they're not pagans. Um, they seem to be God, God-fearers to some degree, but they're not faithful Israelites. So the narrator can set up that name at the beginning of the story, the end of the story, and as God addresses Job from the storm, it seems proper that that's the name that God would use. But for almost all of the book, when people are talking about God, they're talking about God and not, in English translations, Yahweh's translated the Lord. They're talking about God. They're not talking about the Lord how God has ordered the universe. Now, it's clear because it's in our canon and because we're reading it and talking about it, they are talking about how the Lord has structured things, but these people don't have that same narrative frame. It's all creative history. There's no redemption in their book. As we find Job, and we found him in some of the things we read today uh, in 4 through 14, he, his view in last week, going to Sheol, is going to this place of, of sort of rest or death or stillness, um, he has very little sense of the afterlife as well. Um, so all of the questions that he asks, his friends ask, and in some sense us reading this book within the confines of the book, not jumping to other places in the biblical corpus, need to be answered with what's at hand. No cheating. <laughs> um, and that means there's two sort of tensions here, and I talked about it last week some, is we zoom in, 
we lose some of the whole of what Scripture is about. But it's so we can hear the book of Job. And if we zoom all the way out, we lose some of what the particular witnesses, whether it be Genesis or Job or the Psalms, are also saying to us. And so as Christian readers of a book that is made up of 66 different books, it's always important to sort of be able to zoom in and to hear the pain of Job 3, knowing that that's not all of existence and the only word that exists. And so it's important to zoom out also, to hear that there's more to the story than we can see when we zoom in to one section. And not use that to silence the parts. I think that then becomes the temptation if we only want to zoom out, is we just silence everything else. Or we mute everything um, into a, a, a register that, that works for us. Um, so I think that's important as we get into the book of Job, is to sort of have that sort of notion that we're looking at a book that deals with things at hand as they are. Um, deals with them in, in the plain way. Um, but we've jumped forward. We have Job's friends now who are visiting him. Um, there's, there's Elphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. These are his three friends that come to comfort him. Um, most scholars seem to think that it's an age thing, that, that um, uh, Elphaz is the oldest, Bildad's the second oldest, and Zophar is the third, and that they sort of speak in time. Job's fourth friend, who we haven't heard about yet, who shows up after um, a small section on wisdom in chapter 28, um, seems, is, is sort of phrased as young, and he speaks sort of as a young one, too. We'll get to him uh, later, Elihu. But these are the three that we have at the moment. And each one of them comes from this sort of definitive realm that we've talked about, is that you reap what you sow. Job reaping destruction for them means that somewhere secretly, Job has sowed some sin himself. This is the definitive way the world is ordered to wisdom at this time. Aim appropriately, aim at the highest good, Continually seek to achieve it, cut off sinfulness, and things will work out for you. Now, like I said, it's interesting that Job himself says, I know that, but I didn't do anything wrong. Job continually, and like I said, it's one thing for us to hear, oh yeah, Job says that, but Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, even good... Uh, God, in chapter 2, said, you have caused me to strike him for no reason. So the type of suffering we get from sin, it almost seems like God is saying, what we've given Job is over the top. Um, as that scene in the four friends that come. Um, I mean, we've seen people suffer, um, but that's almost comical in form. Like, can you imagine Job sitting down, opening up, uh, his paper, the cup of coffee, and four people coming with terrible news like that. It's almost over the top in the way in which it is formed for us. Um, God seems to accept that too at the end, is that this is not what he deserved, even for the type of sinfulness that exists in regular human activity. 
But each of Job's friends wants to sort of defend the universe as they understand it. And I hope as we were going through it, as David, um, Shelley, and Brian were reading, I kept thinking, that sounds fair. Like, like what they saying, you know, don't you know it's all a mystery, Job? Which was um, uh, Zophar, Brian's voice, um, uh, David's voice, you know, that these things have been passed down to us. This is how things work. Um, uh, the first voice, you know, God um, wounds and binds up. That, that it's really, I think, hard, because if you honestly read what his three friends offer him, it sounds a lot like what we would offer people in suffering. And that is a hard word for us, because they all get rebuked at the end. Um, and it is Job who is the one who speaks truthfully about God, it is said. Um, and so how do we walk with that through this? Now, Eliphaz has, starts off, like I said, if someone ventures a word with you, will you be impatient? But who can keep from speaking? Think of how you instructed many, how you've strengthened feeble hands. Two things in this introduction for him. First, many of us um, confronted with somebody speaking in the tone of Job 3 would rush to offer some word because we feel like that would be charitable to them. Things are not as dark as they seem. And that temptation is also not always unwise either, but it is the one that he feels is that you've laid out your depression, your anger, and angst. Is it okay for one to speak with you? Also noted in chapter 1 was that Job was one of the greatest men of the East. What Eliphaz says, too, is that you're one who used to instruct people in this way, almost. You've instructed, you've given advice, you've done this, and so may we do the same for you. And because um, there's a little bit of a lesson here in that Job's friends are, aren't the greatest all the time, this can seem a little bit about like throwing your words back in your face. <laughs> um, you know, uh, none of us have ever done that in fights, I'm sure, but you used to say, and now you say this, um, see, I got you, which may be fun, but in the midst of suffering isn't really the way in which we would be wise to help one another. Um, now, I think Eliphaz is trying to say the order you understood the world under um, is not gone. Um, let's, let's redirect our compass so that we can live in that order again. But what I love about Eliphaz, and maybe you've run into this some in your own suffering of life, um, uh, <laughs> this is, this is he's, he wants to talk about a dream he had. And a, in this dream in that uh, chapter Four, he talks about this form that comes over him, and it speaks these words to him. Can a mortal be more righteous than God? Can a strong man be more pure than his maker? Eliphaz needed to disguise in a dream nobody's perfect. <laughs> this, this, you, if somebody, one of your friends, comes to you in the midst of suffering and says, look, I've received a word, a dark form passed in front of me, and what it told me is nobody's perfect, wouldn't you want to smack him? Um, uh, essentially, his, this is, is what is revealed here to, to him in his dream, is that, look, I've had this dream, this experience I want to share with you, and it's one of the most base observations anybody could make about human life. 
which is that none of us are perfect. But what's even weirder is he'll move forward to saying, um, who being up innocent ever has perished, whoever being upright ever destroyed. Is I have the, uh, this is him stating retribution doctrine. Sorry, the one about um, how God disciplines us. So he's already playing two different arguments to Job's suffering. One is nobody's perfect. Second is, but God loves you enough to discipline you. You can see how this starts to become disorienting for Job. Um, they're using different sort of logics to, to shore up the world as they see it, to sort of bring life out of this chaos. Um, and he invites him to take trust again. But what happens is Job is, in fact, blameless. Um, uh, and this is what he accuses his friends of, which is, I think, an important word too afterwards. And his response to Eliphaz, which is this, anyone who withholds kindness from a friend forsakes the fear of the Almighty. Anyone who withholds kindness from a friend forsakes the fear of the Almighty. Now, kindness in this this passage is one of my favorite words in Hebrew, which is hesed. Uh, Carla will say it with the ch if she's here. Uh, there, yeah, she's got the ch for you. But I'll just say it the way I'd say it: h e c h e s e d. But anyways, it's this love that is often used for God. It's the closest word we have in the Old Testament to the New Testament word grace, which is both this kindness, but also this loyalty. And so in different translations, you'll see it translated loving kindness, faithful loyalty, different. It's very hard to put into one phrase. Um, I think it's hard for me because when I read withholds kindness, it sounds, for lack of a better word, weak. Um, but this, this is such a strong, robust word that his friends lack in loyalty. And in doing so, they fear, forsake the fear of the Lord. Now, as Chris has made the sign for us, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. His friends come thinking they're offering wisdom to Job, and in their lack of having kindness, they are forsaking the fear of the Almighty. They are forsaking the fear of God. And so Job responds as such um, by holding God... um, um, that he is innocent, I think, is what he says throughout this passage. His next friend, Bildad... Um, he has this different way of coming at Job. He talks, instead of a dream, he says, ask former generations and find out what your ancestors learned. For we were born not only, yes, for we were born only yesterday and know nothing, and our days on our earth but a shadow. Bildad's argument isn't, one, that God disciplines those who he loves, or that nobody's perfect, but let's ask the past so that we might have some wisdom in this situation. The problem is, is the past Bildad wants to go to is essentially still retribution dogma. You've probably done something wrong, and what you need to do is confess and restore this relationship. Um, But what happens is Bildad introduces sort of a legal metaphor, which Job takes up. But how can mere mortals prove their innocence before God? Though they wished to dispute with him, they could not answer him one time out of a thousand. Is that Job then begins, because of something Bildad said, he takes up this idea that, that Bildad is right, that him and God are locked in a trial. Um, and Job's first instance of taking up this idea is to say, it wouldn't be fair anyways. 
If I could call a trial with God and call my witnesses and God's witnesses, it would end in me losing every time. God is too strong. God is too powerful. God is too wise. God is too mysterious. God is all these things. I would be unable to counter God in trial. What's interesting as we go through the next three dialogues is he's going to grow more confident in his sense that there should be a trial between him and God. What's most incidentally missing throughout this is that God is on Job's side. You go back to chapters 1 and 2, it is God who is on Job's side, but Job doesn't see that. He can't see that. Only the readers, even Job's friends can't see that. Only the readers of the book know that God is on his side. It is the accuser, it is the Hasatan that is raising the questions that are going on here. God has, in some sense, faith in Job, but because Job can't see that, um, he thinks the trial is between him and God. Now, incidentally, the end of the book, which raises, we'll get there, raises a different question because God never says, look, it was just a, a, a bet with one of these adversaries I have, um, but I'm glad we made it out. Here's your people back. Um, uh, that might be the way a poor writer would end the story, but that's not the way the way that the way that God reveals himself at the end of the story, which makes us question that sort of logic a little bit as well. Job's last friend, Zophar, um, uh, he just wants to say, can you fathom the mysteries of God? Can you prove the limits of the Almighty? They are higher than the heavens above. What can you do? They are deeper than the depths below. What can you know? Their measure is no longer than the, uh, is longer than the earth and wider than the sea. Which again is a little bit... Um, Odd advice for one suffering because who doesn't know this, I think. Now, there are times we can become so self-absorbed and miss this equation, but there's this way in which um, all three friends are offering things that the man, the greatest in the East, one who was innocent and blameless, one who offered sacrifices for his children even though they probably had not sinned, doesn't know these things. And there are times when we need to be reminded of what we know. Um, but incidentally, if you read these dialogues, each one of them sort of comes back to say, you did this to deserve it. So as they cloak it in, look, there's a mystery, and I've seen the mystery so well, it's your fault. <laughs> we can't know former generations have lived through this, and what they decided is it's your fault. Um, God might be loving you so much, he's disciplining you, um, ten children are dead, um, which is an odd one on top of that. But previously, he had already instructed him um, in that sense in which nobody's perfect. So this all might be earned and deserved. Um, and what happens, I think, when we're confronted with suffering is it becomes a, a trial of our own. Um, when I sit with people who are in the midst of darkness and depression and rage and anger, I often feel like I need to say something because if I don't say something, their trial actually becomes my trial as well. But that may not be the worst thing. That might be showing loving kindness to them. Um, Job ends with this idea that he would like to go to the grave again if you'd only set me a time and then, but he has this hope too that if you only would set a time and then remember me. If someone dies, will they live again? All the days of my hard service, I will wait for my renewal to come. You will call and I will answer you. You will long for the creature your hands have made. Job has a sense in which he has this feeling that God will eventually see, if you read this full section, that 
Job has done no wrong, and Job will be restored back to his relationship with God. Job will, in some sense, be on the earth after he dies again. But Job continues in that passage to wish for death, to wish for this thing that would end his suffering. Um, as, as the Hasatan was told that he couldn't harm, take Job's life, it seems like Job is unable to take Job's life as well, that he has to live through all of this. Now, two observations that I want to make before we close. Well, three, kind of, I guess. The first one is, um, we read from Philippians 2 that God is one whom took up the form of a servant, um, going to death, even death on a cross. That the, G- the body of Jesus is inscribed with the book of Job. It is one who had everything, who laid it down, took up a form of a servant, and died. And died the despicable death of death on a cross. Oftentimes when I come to think of passages that can go with the book of Job, it's hard because it's the literal life of Jesus Christ that is the story of the book of Job as well. He is the innocent sufferer, is the innocent sufferer for our sake. The second thing we read today was Psalm 8. Job reverses Psalm 8 in his sort of lament. Psalm 8 is a beautiful creation song, going back to creation literature. He asks, what is it that God is mindful of him? He set him a little bit lower than the angels. He's crowned humanity with glory. Job answers, why would God be mindful of us and make us suffer so much? What is going on with God that he would put his time into these people who just suffer and causes them to suffer? I think this is the darkness that confronts us at times in the midst of our own suffering to flip and sort of pervert things that we know to be true. Again, Job speaks rightly of God, but we do have this way in which we begin to doubt all the truth in which we have received. The second thing, or the yeah, the second thing is, this is how Job's friends, there are three people in that circle, talk to Job. They talk directly to Job, and they're trying to give him advice on wisdom to figure out his life. What's interesting and why I think one of the Job, reasons Job speaks rightly is Job speaks back to his friends. He hears his friends. But Job, throughout his responses, always turns back to God. He includes God in this dialogue. Which is interesting, again, as as I've sat with people who are suffering in worse times, I've talked to them, but I have not talked to God with them. And that's where Job's friends, I think, get something wrong. Um, And Job is, is right in the way that he talks to God, although it is offensive to us at times, um, he's always dragging God back into it. The last thing that I want to say about that um, is that Job has this reversed trust, a reverse confidence in God. So often his words seem harsh to us. But what Job is often saying is he's protesting is that, God, you have not ordered the world this way. I know the God I believe in so much that certainly the, reg- the ledger, the, the, the math, is wrong somewhere. And that's a reverse type of hope and trust that I think is worthy for us to think about as we confront our own sufferings in life or the sufferings of our friends to call God to account because we don't think God is like that. 
And like Job's friends, and like Job himself, although Job is, it says, speaks truthfully in the end, which is part of the challenge here, there's something in which God can handle this truth. I can't handle that truth. Speaking of others, but what I think Job's friends miss in their inability to talk to God is that God can handle the conversation we bring God into. When we cut that off, when we stop saying, in the midst of our pain and suffering, um, there is nowhere else for me to go, I'm done, and the conversation ceases to be, that's when we've gone to the darkest spot we can go. To throw up your hands and to say, I'm done with all this, is worse than to say, God, you did the math wrong. Which I think intuitively can make sense to us, and yet we still don't like it. It'd be better to put my head down, quietly take my suffering, and slowly erode my trust and faith in God than it would be to stand up straight, to talk to God, and to protest some of what I might be suffering because then at least I've talked to the one who has the answers, who knows the situations, and can meet me in that. And that's hard. Um, And we'll find that hard as we continue throughout the book of Job. Um, We'll end there for today. Um, Let us pray. God, we give you thanks for the wisdom that comes to us in the book of Job. That when we look at creation and look at the way things are ordered, we are brought to questions about what is the order of the universe. If we do good things, should not all good things come our way? And if we do bad things, should not all bad things come the way of bad people? And yet, like Job's friends, we find that the world isn't that clean. And we can double down on our explanations, or we can sit with people in kindness and loving faithfulness, and loyalty, and address the God who orders all things with them. Bring God into the conversation. Lament, protest, reverse our hope, and proclaim the restoration of that relationship will come someday as we wait in the fullness of time to be raised from our deaths and granted new life as well. We ask this in the name of the Son, the Father, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.